This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation, and storytelling skills. Visit lizbruner.com and take your skills to the next level. From illiteracy to gang activity, my guest's childhood prepared him for nothing less than a life of crime and violence. His behavior so atrocious, he was sentenced to more than 100 years in prison, and yet, his journey from the prison yard to Harvard Yard and a life-changing epiphany is why he has spent every day of his freedom using his voice as an ambassador of hope. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and joining me today is Andre Norman. Andre, welcome to my podcast. It is so great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Well, over and over again in your life, there were these pivotal moments, and yet the choices you made took your life down a very dark and at times very lonely path, all of which is chronicled in your amazing book, Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty into a Purpose-Driven Life. I recently read it, and it is riveting, Andre. Oh, my God. You write about three rules that you lived by back then. What were they? And share with us how they governed your behavior. There's three rules I lived my life by as a young kid growing up. One, it's okay to hit people because I watched my mother be hit for years. So if she can be hit, anybody can be hit. Two was I better protect myself. I grew up through the busing crisis of Boston. Kids would throw rocks and names at us on the buses just for going for the wrong neighborhood. And nobody ever came to help me. So I had to protect myself. And three, I can quit anytime I wanted. My dad walked out on us when I was in the first grade. He quit on me because it got tough, I guess. So I can quit on anything I thought was tough. Mm. And from eight years old on, that's how I lived my life. You write in the book that you committed too many violent acts to even name or count. And you went from being number 20,000 in the prison system to number three to the doorstep of number one meaning you were known as one of the most feared men in the Massachusetts prison system. You had your crew, and you were surrounded by people who did everything and anything you said, even the prison guards? Even the prison guards. Prison guards understand one thing. Their job is to get home at the end of the day. Their job is not to change us. Their job is to make sure that we stay where we're, we're sentenced, and they get home at the end of the day safe. Oh. If me and you or another prisoner want to fight it out and kill each other, of course, safety is their primary, but their personal safety is the ultimate primary. What I found so interesting when reading the book also, Andre, is that you admit that the only place you felt safe, which seems a little strange, was in prison. What do you mean by that? When I was a young kid growing up in a neighborhood, my sister had an um, addiction. So she still stuff out of the house. So my mom, when I was a kid, put a padlock on her bedroom door. I would come home and every bedroom in my house had a padlock on it. Oh so I've been in prison long before I stepped foot in the prison system. It was just coming home and seeing locked doors was normal. So when I finally got to prison, it was just like an extension of being home almost. You write about also that much of the pain that led to those years in prison was about your dad. And you just mentioned that he left when you were eight. He quit. And at times you thought that it was your fault. And that haunted you for nearly all of your adult life. There's so many of us who are adults now who didn't understand at seven, eight, nine, that it wasn't our fault. As right. an eight-year-old, I don't know how to process that this is a husband and wife thing and they're not getting along and maybe it's a money or relationship or communication thing. I see the world through my life. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I can't at eight years old process other people's lives. So everything had to be somewhat connected to me because mm. that's how I knew life. When I was hungry, I was hungry. It was never where hungry. And when I was cold, I was cold. So when he left, it was something that I had to have part in. As impactful as that day was, you say the worst day of your life, though, that had a profound effect on you was the day of your fifth grade graduation. What happened that day? Me and my brother went to a local school and graduation is fun. There's six kids in our family, so like twice a year there's a graduation. And when I got to fifth grade, normally the sister would graduate and we'd all show up and take pictures, have cake, have a celebration. My fifth grade graduation, nobody showed up. Mm. So I'm sitting in the auditorium. They call a name, you stand up, they clap, they take pictures, and you sit down. So I'm sitting there long enough to realize that there's nobody here for me. Mm. And it was just like sitting in this giant room and you don't exist. It was tough. It's a tough day. So much solitude growing up, and because you couldn't read, at one point in time, you were put in the dummy class, but there was a substitute teacher, Ms. Oliver, who said to you, you're not a dummy. You just learn differently. Andre, there were so many teachers who tried to help you, including Ms. Oliver. Oh, Ms. Oliver helped me. She helped me with one of the biggest gifts ever, the ability to learn how to read and write. I've met people, including my dad, who have no concept of reading and writing at all. Mm-hmm. They actually live in like an invisible world. So she got me off the illiteracy to just being functionally literate, which is a huge difference. Yeah. And I started to learn that there was hope. So many people who can't read give up. They're hopeless. Mm-hmm. And she gave me hope that I could learn. And she showed me how I studied and how I process information. And nobody had ever really taken any time to do that for me before. Yeah. Well, another thing that gave you hope, you started playing the trumpet, and yet you gave it up. Why did you quit? And share with us how that made you feel at that time. By the time I got to the ninth grade, I've been playing the trumpet all through middle school. I went to a magnet school, especially for musicians, because my teacher, Ms. Ellis, said, follow your gift, don't follow your friends. So when I got to the new school, and I'm there, and I'm hanging out with the band kids every morning, a bunch of nerds. <laughs> we play our music. Then I hang out in the afternoon with, with the cool guys and the tough guys. And the c- tough guys told me playing the trumpet was stupid. I need to get rid of it. <sighs> it's dumb. Black people don't play the trumpet. What can you go play the trumpet? And they just hated on it. And they gave me the ultimatum, either them or the trumpet. So mm. I gave up the trumpet. Another incredible opportunity that came your way. You went to Europe for a summer. And you had an opportunity to go again. However... It didn't happen. And you call that the last station on the tracks that you blew it. And the next stop was prison. How and why did you blow it, Andre? In 11th grade, I got selected by a fate of strange luck and love to go represent my high school. After failing three years in a row, 9, 10, 11th grade, I got selected as the most, the most potential of any kid in Boston public school system in 1984. They gave a test based on potential, not grades. And they selected me. I got to go to Europe. And I had such a great time. I met kids from around the country, rich white kids, for lack of a better term. We just hit it off. It was like the greatest summer ever. And when all these kids went home, they told their parents that they met the coolest guy ever. And their parents called the company and said, hey, we want our kid to go where Andre goes next year. I had a one-year scholarship. But so many parents called that the company was like, we're going to bring this guy back because he's popular. They brought me down and shot me down. I had a conversation about me coming back the next year, going back on as another student. Then if that went well, they make me a junior counselor and I can just scale my way up. 
And it was a clear way out of the hood, for lack of a better term. But there was nobody around me to help me process the opportunity. Mm. So I didn't know how to process the opportunity. So they didn't, they didn't, never took life. They gave me the option. They gave me the contract. They gave me everything. But my mom and dad wasn't involved. My older sisters weren't involved. And it was just like me, the 16-year-old, trying to figure it out. And my processing wasn't that great back then. So many opportunities, so many times that hope filled your heart, so many moments when you could have turned your life around, and yet it didn't happen, and you end up in the prison system, and you're, I mean, you're like the the top dog, basically. But something did finally change for you. One day, you made a different choice. You decided to change your life, and it was all because of an epiphany. What happened? My goal in prison was to be the best prisoner you could be. I wanted to be that guy. For six years, I got in fights, I got knife fights, I got riots, I got riots on planes, I got shipped around the country. I was thoroughly invested in being the top prisoner. And when the time came to be that, I saw it for what it was. I was about to become the king of nowhere. And when I saw that, God spoke to me. And God said, I only don't do this life choice. And I got mad. I'm like, God, why are you speaking to me? Because all of my life, there's been no God. I watched my mother beat to the floor. I watched kids throw rocks at me. I watched my dad walk out the house. I watched so much trauma in my life. You never showed up. So why are you showing up now? And God just told me, don't do this life choice. And he stuck to that. Mm. I listened to him. and I went back to my cell and I didn't hurt anybody. And I said, I don't want to be the king of nowhere. And God gave me that moment of clarity to see something else. I said, I'm going to go home and be successful. And I picked Harvard University as my target. If I get a degree from Harvard, how can you not be successful? It's my thinking. It was impossible not to win. Mm -hmm. So now you are in solitary confinement many times, but you used that time to your advantage. You continued to learn how to read, to continue to learn how to write. You learned math, and you write that you studied for 20 hours a day for two years. How did the other prisoners react to that when they learned that that's what you were doing? It happens all too often. People go crazy in jail. The pressure of being incarcerated is just too much. Mm -hmm. Being away from your family, being locked in a cell, going through whatever you're going through, your demons just pop up and people snap. They go on medication or they don't, but they just snap and lose their faculties. So people thought I snapped. They said, Andre went crazy. Andre used to be this top big gang leader doing all this stuff. Now he's over here reading the book. He went crazy because nobody would give up this life for that life. Mm -hmm. And they just kind of wrote me off as I'm doing crazy, which was good for me because nobody was really getting in my way of studying. So I just studied, studied, studied. They're like, man, it's, everybody goes through, I want to get out of jail stuff, but it never works. It's like, oh, he's wasting his time. It'll never work. Give him five years, he'll spin back. And he'll be back out here hanging on the yard again, playing ball. But I stayed to that thing and I made it work. And when they opened the gate and let me out, everybody was shocked. They're like, how did that happen? I just studied for eight years, 20 hours a day in front of you. We mean, how did it happen? Yeah. You didn't believe for eight years. I believe for all eight. When you believe and you apply yourself, you don't need the popular vote. You just need your own commitment. Mm, so well said. And I love the fact that you also use the prison library to teach yourself enough about the law to get released from prison. But even though you were granted parole, mm, the, the Department of Corrections, boy, they did not make it easy for you to want to get out of prison, did they? <laughs> the headache that they gave me at the end was a reflection of the headache I gave them in the beginning. Uh, I mean, you were here of a million people filing lawsuits against the Department of Corrections. I've never filed one. I reap what I sowed. Mm-hmm. And if I dish it out, I got to take it back. 
Yes, they're professional. Yes, it's their job, but they're people. You can't job somebody out of being a person. So I earned every lost paperwork (laughs) or disconnected (laughs) phone call that they gave me. Because literally, they didn't pick my name out of a hat. They picked my name off the list that I gave them. I made myself to be that person. Mm -hmm. And granted, I turned it around. Everything became a lesson. Even the DOC or parts of the DOC giving me a hard time became a lesson. Yeah. And you just have to take the lesson from it and apply it going forward. You finally do walk out of prison in 1999 after serving 14 years of that more than 100-year sentence. What did that day feel like? The crazy part was when you're sitting in prison, freedom is a million miles away. When you go to go home, the first thing is you have enemies in jail. There's guys that just don't like you because you're white, you're black, you're from the other side of town or whatever that looks like. But the day they announce your name on the radio, every morning at nine o'clock, they announce the names. And for maybe like 30 seconds to a minute, everybody's praying that those names make it. We're all in unison for 60 seconds a day. The entire prison population, there's no enemies, there's no hating. It's just, man, I hope he makes it. And so when I went to leave, I had the unity of the prison. But the craziest thing was the distance from inside to outside was 50 yards. It feels like a million miles, but it was only 50 yards. Mm -hmm. That was the most astounding thing. When I got outside, they wanted to take pictures. The people came to take I'm like, man, let's get out of here. (laughs) I'm thinking they're going to change their mind and be like, oh, that's a mistake. Get him back. Let's get away from this place. But they didn't change their mind. Thank goodness. And you end up at Harvard. Talk about that experience. In 1991, I had the thought of going to Harvard University. I set it as a goal. In 2016, Dr. Charles Ogletree gave me a fellowship to Harvard Law School. Mm. Along the way, I became a trainer of executive education at London Business School. I worked in Ferguson, Missouri, helped stop the riots. Along the way, I became one of the top motivational speakers in the world. Along the way, I got married and had a wonderful son. But I never gave up my dream of going to Harvard. And when I got there, they gave me my fellowship. They gave me my little email, anorman at hls.edu, whatever it said. (laughs) I remember. I cried. I cried when they gave me that email. 25 years ago, it seemed impossible to everybody but me. Even with all the success you just shared with us, you also had some struggles personally. You ended up living alone for six years in the Virgin Islands. What was going on? I walked out of prison and I went to work immediately. 90 minutes after I got out of prison, I started working with kids in juvenile detention. Yeah. Prison, parole office, youth center. And I'd go every day to the youth center, every day to my old high school, every day to my mom's church, every day to different community meetings. And after the end of the meeting, I would go home. And I lived in the house by myself. So I'd get home about three o'clock after a whole day, long day of work and it'd be empty. So I go back out in the street and I work till 11 o'clock. I come home, my house would be empty. I go back out and work, come in at 2.30 and just pass out. And that was my life. I'd work all day because I hated being alone. I've been alone since I was a baby. Mm-hmm. And I hate the feeling of walking into an empty house or into an empty space. So it propelled me to work every day. And that just became my life where I worked all day, every day to avoid being alone. Mm-hmm. I never dealt with being alone. I just ran from it. Yeah. So I was extremely successful. I got a chance to work with Ted Kennedy. I got a chance to work with George W. Bush. I got a chance to work with Clinton. I, got a, I can name a thousand people I've worked with. But I never dealt with my issues of being alone. And then finally they caught up to me. 
You can only run so fast for so long. When you sit down, it tapped me on the shoulder. I was like, hey, brother, you never dealt with this this internal feeling of not feeling like you belong or you're good enough or you're worthy and that you deserve to have this life. And you keep running, but I've been waiting for you. <laughs> My demons of not dealing with that part of who I was came back to me. Mm. And then I told myself, people don't care. They're just taking advantage of me. They only care what I can do, not who I am. So I just got on a plane. So I said, I'm just going to go to the island and just relax. I retired at 41. But what I love is that you actually had a very important group of people, friends, who did right. care about you, who truly, truly cared about you and helped bring you back to life. And you mentioned a moment ago that you loved speaking with young people. You talked about also the London Business School. I mean, you've had amazing speaking opportunities, but I know speaking to young people is so important to you because you give it to them straight. Why does this have so much meaning for you? I wanted that speech myself. Yeah. That's the best way I can say it. They sent the probation officer, they sent the judge, they sent the cop, they sent the whoever, but they didn't send anybody who understood me. You didn't have to live my life. They're just saying, well, he's black, I'm not black, I can't help him. My number one mentor is an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. The best man in my wedding is a white guy from Native, volunteer Catholic Church. My godfather to my son is a former Navy pilot from New Jersey, white guy from the suburbs. It's not about being where I'm from. Just be honest, be transparent, and care. If you care, have capacity, and you're consistent, that's the thing that matters. Mm -hmm. And when they came, I didn't need you to be like me. I just need you to understand me. And understanding this means taking the time to say, okay, what are you going through? Don't project, don't guess, just ask me and give me a chance to tell you. Yeah. And I won't tell you the first time because I don't know you that well. But by the third time, I might tell you. But most people didn't hang around to the third time. But you've got people who do. And today you work at the Genesis Network, which is the number one mastermind group in the world. You mentioned being a fellow at Harvard Law. And you're the founder and director of the Academy of Hope, which is a housing unit for the most violent offenders. Andre, what do you want people to learn most from your story? I want them to understand that um, it's collaboration that works. When I had my moment and I tapped out, I thought nobody cared. I thought nobody mattered. I was just another guy rugging a wheel. Had all these, what I would call random people that I had met along the way who really liked me. But they never said anything to me. They just liked me and didn't say anything. And when they found out I was missing, they came looking for me. And they brought me back. And then when they brought me back, then I got to see, oh, wow, people care about me. So the thing I would say to, you, to the listeners is the people you care about, you got to tell them. I mean, I'm glad they came for me. I wish they came and told me sooner. I might have never left. <laughs> <laughs> so there are people that you love and you love on and you care for, you pray for. It's not just enough to do that. Sometimes you got to pick up the phone and call them like, hey, brother, hey, sister, um, I'm rooting for you. I'm glad you're here. Doesn't always have to be like steak dinner or going to the ballpark. Sometimes it's a text will make the difference in a person who's feeling like a little left out or aloof from the situation. And so I tell folks, reach out to your loved ones, wherever they are, and show kindness. Mm -hmm. Andre's book is titled Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty into a Purpose-Driven Life. And you can learn more about his book and the incredible work that he is now doing just simply go to his website, andrenorman.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-N-O-R-M-A-N.com. Andre, I don't know how many prison success stories there are out there, but you are certainly one of them. 
Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and reminding us that we all have the power of choice in our lives and we all have the power to be kind and let people know we care. Thank you so much for sharing that message today. It was my pleasure showing up and I appreciate you having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. I invite you to subscribe, write a review and share this episode. May Andre's story of resilience and a willingness to change and accept help inspire you to live your best life. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fasttwitchmedia.space.